Hello, and welcome to Speaking of College of Charleston. I'm Darcy Goodwin from University Communications, and on today's episode, I'm speaking with Professor of African American Studies and Dean of the Graduate School, Camila Martin, who is here to tell us about her latest research on the Yoruba-based Cuban religion and her religious spiritual initiation. Hi, Camila. We are very excited to have you here. And would you share a bit about your research on Black Atlantic spirituality and how you developed this particular area of expertise? Hi, Darcy. Thank you. Sure. So it goes back to my first class as an undergraduate student at Georgia Southern University. In my very first class, 8 a.m., first class ever, a Black woman walked into the classroom wearing all white. My eyes perked up and I was immediately curious about her. This was a Professor Georgine Bess, who had just undergone her own initiation into the Ifa tradition, which is the name of the actual religion. And the love affair began there. Um, she became a mentor. I took another class with her on African spirituality and literature. And that really became my, my kind of research niche from undergraduate until I finished my, my dissertation. Um, I've written two books on African-based spirituality. Um, I kind of study the representation of African spirituality and Black women in literature and then moved on later to look at film. And then later, as I was doing my research, I was introduced to different practitioners. I started to get invited to participate in some rituals and ceremonies. And so it has just evolved from there and, and kind of culminated in this, this trip to Cuba in summer of 2022. So before we start speaking about your trip to Cuba, how about you tell us about the origins of the Yoruba religion and how it evolved to what it is today in the Americas? Okay, absolutely. So the Yoruba are an eth ethnic group found in West Africa, most notably Nigeria, Togo, and Benin, which were formerly known as the Homi Empire. During the transatlantic slave trade, we saw the Yoruba move across the Atlantic into spaces like Brazil, Cuba, Haiti, and obviously North America. What's particularly interesting is what happens when the Yoruba are enslaved in Catholic colonies, such as Cuba. So the Catholic Church identified enslaved Africans as human and thought that as humans, that they had a responsibility for their soul, for their salvation. So they required them to convert to Catholicism. They had to learn the prayers, the rituals, the catechism, the saints, all of these things. This was actually pretty advantageous to the Yoruba, um, who had a pantheon of deities in their own tradition that really kind of mirrored in some ways the Catholic saints. And so what we see happen is over time, even though the enslaved Africans are technically going to Catholic masses and they're going to the churches and they are worshiping, what they see mirrored in the saints are their Orisha. And so, for instance, um, I visited two churches while I was traveling. One was Our Lady of Regla in Cuba, which this particular saint is would be syncretized as uh, Yemanya or the great ocean mother in the Yoruba tradition. I also had a chance to visit Our Lady of Mercy, um, which that saint is syncretized with Obatala, who is one of the eldest male Orishas and is known as being very wise and cool-headed um, and, and the father of all Orishas. And so you're seeing the Catholic enslaved Africans practice Catholicism. They're also using 
this religion as a way to reserve, preserve rather, preserve their own African spirituality. Camila, can I ask you a quick question? Yes. So the Orisha are basically saints. Yes. So the Orishas are, they're not exactly the saints, but in terms of the iconography, there's the saint. But if you're in the religion, you understand that it's not just the saint, it's also the Orisha. If that makes sense. So it's like a... What exactly is an Orisha? Is it a god? Or it is, is a god. Yes, a god. I try to refrain from using... I try to just use deities as a more palatable term. I think when we talk about... And they, they, are, they are spiritual divine beings. But when I say gods, it doesn't always equate. So I, I tend to use the term deity when trying to describe. That makes sense. I just... Saint always seems like a very specific yes. thing. And I thought... I wanted to be clear. Sure. So in Cuba, um, you know, uh, this tradition is known by a couple of names, which is a Yoruba word or the Spanish translation, regla de ocha. Ocha is the Spanish word for orisha. And more popularly, and I am talking pop culture, it is known as santeria. Um, So it has a couple of names, but it really includes the merging of the two traditions, Catholicism the Yoruba, the African Yoruba tradition, but also some indigenous parts of the practice. Traditionally, African spiritual traditions include ancestor veneration, forms of divination, or I don't want to dumb it down by saying fortune telling, a, a way to divine or predict or prophesy the future. Um, there's also a spirit possession, ritual sacrifice that happens, and most importantly, the worship of the African deities or gods known as the Orisha. Um, so, as I mentioned in Cuba, the Orisha were syncretized or blended with the Catholic saints, which really allowed the enslaved Africans to maintain their religion in plain sight. And I know we spoke about how the Catholic Church really embraced in this part of that religion. But I guess before we get there, tell us about your experience in Cuba. Absolutely. Absolutely. So Cuba is known for being probably the most pristine um practice outside of Nigeria, if you will. And so it was really essential that I traveled to Cuba because I obviously couldn't get to Nigeria. It was really essential that I, I, I went to Cuba to participate in the initiation practice and undergo the coronation mass and become an official member of the Ile or spiritual house and practice with the, this particular community of worshipers. So in Cuba, the culturalist religion is just culturally accepted in a way that it just is not in other places, particularly here in, in the U.S. There are sites like Miami and New York and even Los Angeles that have large populations of practitioners. But because we are a mainly Protestant country, there are a lot of differences in just in terms of how the practice is accepted. So as a new initiate um, in Cuba, one of the parts of becoming an initiate, um, or in which translates to uh, a bride of the Orisha, um, and I like to compare that to Catholic nuns, they become a bride of Christ, right? And so they dedicate their life in service to Christ. So when you become an Iyawo, or an initiate, you are also dedicating your life in service to the Orisha or the spiritual entity of the African tradition. And so this is a, a, a rebirth. You wear white, all white, for a year and a week after you undergo your initiation. And all over Cuba, as I was riding around to the different places that we had to go, you saw these Iyawos all over the place, from toddlers who were two and three years old, to teenagers, to 
elders and you recognize them because they are in white from head to toe, usually with their head covered, white clothing, white shoes, and they or spiritual beads that represent the Orisha to whom they've dedicated their life. And it was really beautiful just to see it everywhere. But then also after I came out and I was in my white and moving around the city, I would get these greetings, these the spiritual greeting that is known among the community. And I could be at a restaurant or as I was leaving to come back to the U.S., coming through security in the airport, no matter where I went, I would just be greeted with a particular, I don't even know how to describe it, gesture and words that let me know that they knew who I was and what I had just been through and also offering their blessing on my journey in the religion. And so it was a beautiful thing. But also, I I, want to share one story that really just blew my mind. So after the coronation mass and I was allowed to come back and kind of be introduced into the larger community, one of the things that, that I did was went to pay homage to Our Lady of Mercy, which is also syncretized or recognized as the Orisha Obatala. So there's a church in central Havana, and we went there, and we were right on time for Mass. It it was just getting started. I came in. I I noticed all of practitioners, worshipers leaving flowers and other offerings at the sanctuary, and I wanted to experience my mother's family as Catholics. I wanted to actually experience being at a Catholic Mass in another country because I had not done that. So they're like, oh, would you like to sit down for a little while? So yes, okay, I'm going to sit down. So I sat, and as Mass started... um, and the Catholic priests came out. There were three of them. I noticed on my left side of the sanctuary, and Iyawo got up and made this beeline to the front of the church and literally met the fathers, or excuse me, the priests at the altar. And she genuflected and they blessed her. And then she went back to her seat. And it was clear that she wanted to be the first person That's to be really blessed nice. by the priests. And she was, again, in her full white, in her alekes, it was very clear that she was an Iyawo, that she was a practitioner of the Lukumi tradition. And my mouth just hung open because I was like, never in the United States would you see a person clearly dressed and identified with an African-based religion be allowed to walk up to the altar and be blessed by the Catholic priests. And and when I say they didn't skip a beat, they blessed her, sent her on her way. But there was this knowing. Everyone knew what was happening. Everyone knew why all the people in white were there, because I was not the only one. Um, And it was just a really beautiful example of how Cuba makes space for this syncretized religion and this culture. And it's accepted. And people just, they know what it is and they accept it. And it's really beautiful. That is amazing. So my understanding is that Cuba is the epicenter of this whole practice. So tell us about your research and your experience there. Absolutely, absolutely. So your Cuba, excuse me, is particularly known for having kept the tradition preserved more intact than any other place in the Americas. There's a direct relationship between Uh, practitioners in Cuba and those in Nigeria. And there has just been a wealth of retention in terms of the tradition. And so that is why Cuba is known as the epicenter. And so if you can't get to Nigeria, the next best place to go is Cuba. 
Um, so I, I went there uh, with my spiritual family or my spiritual church, the Ile or the spiritual house that I have become a part of. I went there to undergo the initiation process or the culminating initiation process known as a coronation mass um, and became an initiate, an official member of the Ile and the spiritual community. So in Cuba, the religion is very much culturally accepted as a new initiate or an Iyawo, um, you know, I had to wear, I have to wear white for a year and a week. But all across Cuba, you can identify these new initiates. You see them wearing white children who are two and three years old to too much older people. They are just sprinkled throughout the community. And no matter where I went in Cuba, from the airport to the grocery store or to a restaurant after I, I had completed the initiation, I was greeted in this this very particular religious way that that let me know that even if they weren't wearing white, they understood who I was and what I had been through. And it was it was just the most beautiful thing. And it's something that you don't really see here in the United States, even though there are practitioners here, you don't really still you don't really experience that sort of cultural acceptance the way that you do in Cuba. So I'm really glad that I did get to experience that there. And you've been doing this process since 2013, right? Yes. And can you just tell us about that process and why you decided to move from observer to initiate? Sure. So I actually met the person who became my godmother, who is my godmother now, about 10 years ago. Um, and like I mentioned, I was, you know, being introduced to different practitioners and being invited to participate in various um, ceremonies as as a scholar. Right. That was my my first focus, my priority. But like with all religions, once you start to participate and you become embraced by the community, you kind of undergo a much longer process. So just like with Catholicism, you have to learn the prayers, you have to learn the catechism, you undergo your first communion. Right. There are steps before you actually um, become a full-fledged member of the church, if you will. And so over the last 10 years, I have been slowly working towards initiation. And that is learning songs, learning prayers, learning rituals, having to get the blessing of my family to, to undergo this particular process. And not just my family, my actual family, my mother, and that sort of thing, but also your spiritual family. Um, one of the components of the religion is ancestor worship. And so you also ask for the blessing of your spiritual ancestors, as well as your ruling Orisha, the deity who will claim you after initiation. So I was supposed to actually take this trip in 2019, the summer of 20. 192020 but covid got in the way so it's been delayed but we finally got it done and so i'm just i'm just overjoyed to talk about it i do want to ask you once you are a full-fledged member of the yoruba religion what do you plan to do and how are you going to practice in the us absolutely so i think one of the things i've noticed most of all, is that as a, as a new initiate, my professional and personal lives have merged. I've written some articles and book chapters about the process and continue. My, my goal is to actually write more of an autoethnography about the entire experience. And so that is still in progress. But I've noticed that I have new scholarly insights right into to films and books and other representations of the religion because i now see things that i would not have seen and just didn't have knowledge of before spiritually i think i've gained a sense of uh, a, a deeper sense of faith i am part of a larger international congregation now that comes with a lot of benefits protection mentorship i'm still learning the religion that i you know parts that i didn't have access to as a scholar i think overall i'm left with a profound sense of protection and and a new 
sense of spiritual armor that that I'm having. Um, it's interesting because, like I said, there there are parts, there are members of my ELA all across the United States and some who are obviously in, in Cuba. And we commit to coming together at least once a year or more, but it is a constant um, process of learning, of experiencing things. You know, everyone's path is different, but it is a beautiful community. And I am just looking forward to learning more as I finish out my first year of initiation. I wanted to ask you about the necklace. Does your necklace represent a specific deity? It does. The Orisha who rules my head, as the saying goes, is the one that I was chosen by before coming into the world of the living, right? So in the spiritual realm, I choose or my spirit chooses to pair itself to a particular Orisha. I come into the world with that particular Orisha. But once I am born, I forget all of these things and then have to make this journey to reclaim and reconnect with that particular entity, right? Um, so the Orisha who rules my head is Oshun. She is the Orisha of love and femininity and healing and prosperity. There are a long line of folktales or odus that are associated with this particular Orisha. She is one of the probably most recognized Orishas in popular culture. You might have seen a particular Beyonce film where she is dressed and is invoking this particular a spiritual energy. It got a lot of buzz when it came out. But that is the Orisha that I was crowned with. Very yes. nice. So did you choose it or were you? No. So I didn't choose it. I went, I had to undergo a ritual in which a type of oracle was consulted, which then confirmed that Oshun had chosen me as her child. So I am known as a child of Oshun and she is my spiritual mother. Very cool. Yes, I think so. So once you are fully initiated and you begin your practice here, how are you going to do it? And what do you plan? Yes, that is a good question. So as a new initiate, for me, when I undertook this as not just a spiritual journey, but also as a professional journey, the idea was to evolve as a scholar, to think through literature, film, all of the, these various texts that represent African spirituality through new eyes. There are things that I just could not know as someone who was not initiated in the tradition. And so to, to that end, I am my plan is to write an autoethnography where I capture the experience because it is, it is something very different than looking through the archives, doing close textual readings, you know, you know, reading other people's studies or ethnographies. I have moved from, I guess, more book learning to applied learning, or like we, we like to say here at the college, experiential learning, right? I have a, <laughs> a whole new understanding that I'm able to bring to my scholarship, and I do plan to write about this. And then there's the spiritual side. I think I'm still very much learning. I'm in month five of my first year. So I still have so much to learn. It's, it's really starting over what I thought I knew as a scholar. Um, I can build on some of that stuff, but I'm, I really feel like I'm back at zero and I'm learning in a whole new way. And it is spiritually gratifying. I feel like I am connected to a larger international congregation that comes with a lot of benefits. I think there's just the network. There's protection, there's mentoring, there's just so much that comes with that. We try, we, my my Ile or my house, because we are an international bunch spread across not just this country, but some others. So we do try to come together at least once a year for ritual purposes. But I can tap into any of those networks or other 
members to learn, right? And so it's, it's, it's a learning process and you learn by practicing. So it is essential that I continue to make myself available. And with technology, it's just, you're not as restricted by location. Um, but one of the other things that I think will really change as I kind of continue to grow as an initiate, as a member, is my teaching. I, I have taught a course on the folklore of the African diaspora. And this was, oh gosh, this was the COVID semester. So it was this fall of 20 was the last time that I taught the course. And as part of the course, I would bring in other speakers to talk a little bit more about their experience with the religion. But now I don't have to do that. There's just a new edge that I will be able to bring to the classroom and to my teaching that I didn't have before. Um, I can speak to the experience in a much more personal way with my students. And it was even when I was bringing in speakers, like that was always the best part of the class because students got to ask questions and hear some really interesting stories about what practicing the religion is, is or what you go through and tap into their own sense of spirituality and what that means. And so I'm just, I'm really excited to be able to talk with students about the initiation. And in fact, in fall of 2020, when I last taught the course, I thought I was going to Cuba over the winter break. And I was, we were all excited about it. And I was like, yes, yeah, so I'm about to take this big step and we'll have to get together and I have to share with you all what's going to happen or what has happened. And I didn't get to, I didn't get to do that. But now when I teach the course again, I'll be able to talk a little more firsthand about the experience. And I think that's going to mean a world of difference to students. And um, I, this is totally an aside, but is Beyonce part of it? Ah, so there, there is suspicion that she is. So... I happen to have written or edited a book about Beyonce. And so I know a little bit there is some speculation. She did take a trip to Cuba. Um, I, I can't remember what year that was, but there was sightings of Beyonce in Cuba walking among the people. Right. And we were like, oh, what is Beyonce in Cuba for? And then there were other pictures of her with really short hair. She had cut off all of her hair. One of the other parts of initiation for some members is that they also have to shave their head, right? It's a part of the ritual process. My, my Orisha, I am not scared to admit, Oshun declared that I would keep my hair because she liked me with hair. And so she made that determination. So I did not actually have to shave my head. Um, but beyond, there were pictures of Beyonce with some really short hair. And then when she came out with the Lemonade album, there were a lot of images and, and references to Oshun and the Orisha. And so there is a lot of speculation that she perhaps has undergone an initiation. I personally think she has undergone an I think there's enough evidence there to suggest that she has definitely undergone an initiation. But there's no proof one way or the other. But I, I suspect that she has she is dabbling in the practice. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you very much for a really insightful chat. My pleasure. My pleasure. Thank you. I want to thank everyone for listening to this episode of Speaking of College of Charleston with our guest speaker, Camila Martin. For more episodes and to read stories about our guests, visit the College of Charleston's official news site, the College Today at today.cfc.edu. You can find this and past episodes on all major podcast platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and leave a review. This episode was produced by Amy Stockwell from University Communications with recording and sound engineering by Jesse Coons. 
from the Division of Information Technology. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time.